This conversation was recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, a weekend of challenging, inspiring and robust discussions with powerful speakers from around the world. Good morning. Hello. Welcome. Welcome to the 2016 Festival of Dangerous Ideas here at this magnificent Opera House. Wonderful that you're here this morning. Let me just remind you of the hashtag, the all-important hashtag, so you can be part of the conversation on social media. Hash, F-O-D-I, FODI. And thank you also for popping your phones on silent or on vibrate, if you want a very good time this morning. My name is Natasha Mitchell from ABC Radio National, where I'm a presenter, I'm a science journalist. Really great that you've turned up on a Sunday morning for this excellent discussion that we're going to have. And I'm wondering, did you wake up this morning and think, you know, leap out of bed thinking, I feel so innovative today. <laughs> did you make a cup of coffee just the way you like it this morning and think, look, I really should be innovating more about how I do this. I could be doing this in a new way. Or did you take your kids to the soccer match yesterday and uh, your feedback to them might have been, well, that was great, darling, but I really think you could be more innovative <laughs> on the field. Come on, socks up. The innovation obsession. I mean, it is truly with us, isn't it? But it's been with us before. Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull isn't the first political leader in this country or anywhere in the world, indeed, to put out an innovation statement or an innovation strategy, and he certainly won't be the last. Innovation has strong bipartisan support in this country. It's seen as a vehicle for economic growth by all sides of the political game. What actually is it? Is it, is it forward thinking? Is that a good thing? Uh, seeking out novel ways of doing things? Surely that's a good thing. Surely that's a sort of innate capacity of us as creative humans with big frontal lobes. It's an impulse that we all possess. Is it our, is it our path to collective nirvana, perhaps? We are all about celebrating the innovators at the moment. Certainly the political rhetoric has us believe that we should celebrate the innovators. What about the maintainers? And as it happens, Lee Vinsel is co-founder of The Maintainers, a research group that is currently challenging the preoccupation with innovation, instead focusing on the repair and the care and the maintenance of what we already have. And uh, also celebrating the mundane labour that makes the world tick that many of us are involved in. He is an assistant professor of science at Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey. His new book, which is about to be published, looks at the regulation of the automobile from the early vehicle to the Google car. And we are looking forward to you being part of the conversation in today's session as well with the two microphones. Please welcome to the stage, all the way from New Jersey, Lee Vinsel. Hi, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that nice introduction, Natasha. It's really wonderful to be here. Uh, about a week ago, I was talking to my daughter, Henrietta, who's just about to turn three, and I was telling her that I was going to come to Australia, and she asked me what I was going to do here. And I said, well, I'm going to give a talk. And she looked at me and she said, you're going to talk? Like, you talk a lot too much here in home, actually. Why are you going to go all the way to Australia to bother those people? And um, no, I said, no, I'm going to give a talk on a stage, on a big stage. And she considered this for a moment. And then she said, yeah, but are you going to dance? <laughs> and I, I promise you that I am not going to dance, um, both, because both for my body and for your poor eyeballs, that would be a truly dangerous idea. I'm not here to dance, uh, but I am here to talk to you about an idea, a word. And if we use digital tools to track English usage over time, we find that we are literally hearing this word more than we ever have before. It's traveled all around the globe. It's taking the world by storm. And I know that you have hear, heard it an awful lot recently here 
in Australia, and of course that word is innovation. The introduction of new things, especially new technologies, into society. What I'm going to argue today is that there is a profound difference between innovation as a thing that really happens in this world and innovation as a word or concept which is surrounded by hype, rhetoric, nonsense, and false promises, or what I will call innovation speak. And I will argue further that we are better served by an alternative vision of human life with technology that is more grounded, more sober, and probably more boring, honestly. Um, but before we can explain, explore that alternative vision, we must understand how we came to our uh, innovation-dominated moment and also why our kinky little innovation fetish so often fails us. Now, the single most important cause of, that led us to this innovation speak dominated moment is the role of innovation in industrial capitalism. Here it's really helpful to make that distinction between innovation as the thing that really happens and as speech. Between the late 19th century and about 1970, many industrialized nations around the globe went through an unprecedented period of technological revolution and economic growth. This revolution included the introduction of modern plumbing, sewerage, electricity, telephones, automobiles, airplanes, uh, you know, modern chemicals, electronics, and so many other things. These things radically altered the daily experiences of those people who had access to them. And of course, we all know that there's many places in this world where people still don't have access to these things. And, that we could talk about that, that would be a whole nother talk. That would be a whole nother lecture series, right? But if, if innovation is the tr introduction of new things, new things played a fundamental role in transforming industrialized nations during this period. The technological world of eight, 1970 was a different technological world than 1870. But here's the thing. For many Western nations, this extended period of rapid growth came to an end in about 1970. Yet use of the term innovation, and especially the term, the phrase technological innovation, only really took off in the 1960s and 1970s. Which means that most of this technological change and economic growth, the actual process of innovation, occurred without the assistance of the term technological innovation. The thing happened before and without the aid of the jargon. <laughs> so then the question is, like, where did the jargon come from? Now, one source of the jargon is that it was a group of economists working in the United States in the late 50s and early 1960s, and they were trying to make sense of a puzzle. By that time, they had some pretty good economic statistics, and what they were finding is that the traditional factors that were exposed to explain economic growth, like changes in capital and labor, simply could not explain that growth. There was some kind of X factor out there that was creating all this bounty. And so these economists hypothesized that that X factor was technological change or innovation. And over the ensuing years, this became an orthodox view. Now, if you believe that technological innovation is a good thing and that it is leading to this even better thing called economic growth, it's quite natural and completely understandable to ask, well, how do we get more of these good things? There was a real turning point in this history in the 1970s, however. It was during this time that the term innovation policy started being used. Now, innovation policy put it in clearer and clearer terms that the point of government policy, law, rules, tax codes, and all these things should be to induce innovation. Innovation policy became a way to view all of society from the highest level of the economy to the most intimate level of the individual human being. The highest level, you can ask, how much economic growth we, do we have? At a slightly lower level, 
How many patents are we producing? How much entrepreneurship are we seeing? And then finally, at the lowest level, what kind of skills are ending up in the bodies and minds of our children? Now, make no mistake, innovation policy is about remaking every aspect of our society into the corporate image. This is about reforming the most basic institutions of our culture, science, government, our schools, universities, in the name of commerce. Innovation fetishists like to talk about imagination, creativity, ideas, even idea booms. That was in Turnbull's plan. But this isn't about you falling in love with someone, locking yourself in a bedroom and writing a poem that sets this person's heart on fire. And it's also not about doing science because the world is full of wonder and mystery and because our lives are made richer when we better understand our universe. This is about creativity that you can commercialize. This is about imagination that you can mine and turn into profit. Now, it's about this time that innovation policy emerged in the late 70s and early 80s that we start seeing books being written about this place named Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley got turned into a kind of mental model, and cities all around the world, uh, from China to Europe to India to the American Midwest, where I grew up, to Australia, wanted to be the next Silicon Valley. Now, last year, opposition leader Bill Shorten said, basically, we have got an aspiration to help turn Silicon Valley into Kangaroo Valley. <laughs> I thought that was wonderful. <laughs> the, the obsession with Silicon Valley is a little confusing when we think about it. Sure, the valley is home to super-rich tech companies like Facebook and Google, but these companies employ very few people when it comes down to it. And more important, Silicon Valley is a tremendously unequal place, divided between haves and haves not, have-nots, between the tech-educated geniuses and the uneducated poor, often immigrants, who tend to the geniuses' lawns, make the geniuses' foods, and care for the geniuses' children. <laughs> now, given that reality, why is Silicon Valley some place that you would hope to emulate? But I would argue that if humans excel at anything, it is at ignoring reality. <laughs> so, to this day, Silicon Valley remains a kind of model that localities hope to accomplish and governments hope to produce. And since the 1990s, we have heard innovation speak more and more all around the globe, including here in Australia. Now, innovation speak has several problems and ironies. I've already mentioned one of them. The era of innovation speak and innovation policy only emerged after the period of the most that the period when the most profound innovation had come to an end. In this way, I think innovation speak almost appears to be a form of compensation for what is lacking. It's a bit like an older guy who buys a sports car. <laughs> you know? Please look at this shiny thing right here, and let's forget what's missing, which is significant growth. But to go beyond uh, irony, I think there are three fundamental problems with innovation speak. The, the first, briefly, is that while innovation speak pretends to be about optimism and opportunity and boundless, uh, boundless future, it's in fact a rhetoric of fear. Often it's a fear of being left behind, whether that means our nation not competing in the global economy, our businesses being disrupted, or our children failing to find a job because they do not know how to code. The second problem is that instead of encouraging us to deal with real pressing problems in our society, innovation speak gives us promises for what the future will bring. And when I talk about this ideology, I often point people to Christopher Nolan's 2014 film, Interstellar, which if you haven't seen, I'm about to ruin for you right now. So if you don't want to hear about it, go ahead and cover your ears. Um, now, the film opens with a, the people of Earth facing a prototypical environmental apocalypse. Crops are failing, there are dust storms. Soon, the father in the movie, who's played by Matthew McConaughey, has an opportunity to join a team that is leaving Earth and flying through a wormhole in hopes of finding a new home for humanity. 
once he gets through the wormhole, he hooks up with some aliens, and he has some kind of realization. And then through the magic of time travel and wormholes, he's able to communicate that realization back to Earth to his daughter, who, lo and behold, saves the world. <laughs> but here's the thing. What precisely the father tells the daughter is left a complete mystery, and of course that's totally necessary, because if Christopher Nolan knew how to save the world, he should save the world and not make a Matthew McConaughey movie, right? <laughs> um, but the film asks us to take it on faith that such a thing is possible, right? It's like, but of course, there's no technology just waiting over the horizon to save our asses or save us from ourselves. There just isn't. Yet the idea that there could even be such a thing perfectly aligns with the tech-centric libertarian ideology coming out of Silicon Valley. And this brings us to the third and final problem with innovation speak, while we are busy treating innovation policy like economic Viagra for our significant growth problems, innovation fetishists are also passing a bunch of policies that A, aren't proven to work, and B, mostly help the wealthy. It's hard to tell if indiv individual innovation policies have much benefit, and there are good reasons for being skeptical. After all, innovation policy has existed since the 70s. As a result of it, are we currently living in a period of staggering economic growth? No, just the opposite. Innovation policy has become something like a standardized set of tools, including many aspects of Turnbull's plan. <clears throat> Tax breaks, research funding, various uh, incentives, nearly all of which help people who already have money at least to some degree. Now, it's no coincidence, I think, that the age of innovation speak is also the age of increasing inequality, including, I was saddened to hear, here in Australia. So there's the three problems. Fear, promissory notes, and policies that might not be good for much other than ensuring those who already have, have more. But on top of all of this, there's one more thing. And I haven't counted it as one of the problems because you, I don't want you to think I'm shallow. <laughs> um, on top of all the problems inherent in the innovation-centric view, innovation-speak is also horribly annoying. <laughs> um, for some reason, our, our leaders have decided they have to bludgeon us with a kind of standardized package of Silicon Valley-approved rhetoric. Innovation, disruption, disruptive innovation, angel investors, thought leaders. I'm sure, there's, I'm sure you guys are all thought leaders. I don't want to... <laughs> entrepreneurship, change agents, startups, incubators, regional innovation hubs, unicorns, STEM education. I read in an article that your prime minister has recently taken to the word agile. <laughs> A beloved Silicon Valley term, agile. We have to be agile. Everything's agile. <laughs> At some point, it's just like, you know, like, it's like someone's got your arm behind your back. It's like, uncle, you know? You can pass any policy you want, do anything, just don't talk like that anymore. <laughs> it's, at some point, it just all got to be too much for me and my friends. Um, a couple of years ago, I started going around and giving a talk where I pretended to be a part of an Alcoholics Anonymous-style 12-step group called Inno-Anon. <laughs> and I would stand up and I would say, Hello, my name is Lee, and I'm an innovation speaker in recovery. <laughs> you can imagine that didn't go over too well at innovation conferences. Um, but the final straw came in 2014 when the uh, American journalist Walter Isaacson published his book, The Innovators, How a Group of Hackers, Geniuses, and Geeks Created the Digital Revolution. And my friend and co-author, Andy Russell, who I wish was here with me very much, sent an email to me saying we had to write a counter volume and that we should call it The Maintainers, how a group of bureaucrats, standards engineers, and introverts created technologies that kind of work most of the time. 
Thank you. Uh, so it all started as a joke, literally, okay? And we put it out on Twitter, and it started getting traction. And then uh, we decided we'd hold a conference. So this past April, uh, we held this conference, the maintainers in Hoboken, New Jersey, at my school, Stevens Institute of Technology. Hoboken's just across the river from Manhattan. And then to our surprise, news of the conference went viral. It got picked up by The Atlantic, The Guardian, Le Monde, many other publications. I was interviewed by your ABC radio. And I have to tell you that this felt really weird. Okay, because academic conferences full of nerds and like computer historians don't go viral. That's not something that happens in this planet. So we had a real question, like what is going on here? And then soon emails just started to roll in from all over the planet, from Europe and Russia and Africa and Singapore and Australia. And everyone was telling us the same thing, is that innovation speak was everywhere and that wasn't it just nice to have someone pushing back a little bit. <laughs> now, since that time, we've been working to put forward an alternative view of human life with technology, which we call the maintainers. And if I've highlighted um, three problems with innovation speak, let me also put forward three aspects of this alternative view. But before I begin, I have to say that I have a great deal of trepidation coming to Australia to talk about maintenance given your long and proud tradition of thinking about this subject. For instance, in 1978, some prescient and insightful young men took to the public airwaves and began calling themselves men at work. <laughs> now, if there's any bit of correction needed here, it's that quite often when we're talking about the labor of maintaining and sustaining society, we're actually talking about women at work. But more seriously, whereas innovation policy has become a kind of one-size-fits-all standardized package prescriptions that can seemingly be applied anywhere, attending to ordinary human life with technology means focusing on the local, including local needs. I know what innovation speak is hiding and ignoring in my backyard, but I don't know what it's doing here. And so I'm not going to be as arrogant as innovation fetishists to come here and pretend I know. So I hope we can turn to that in discussion. So here's three things. Number one, technology is not innovation. When many people talk about technology, they base today, they basically mean like smartphones and digital gadgets. But technology, a useful technology, a definition of technology is a much more expansive definition, which includes all human-made objects that have use, including basic tools like hammers and spoons. When we think, begin to think this way, we realize that most technologies are not new, but are in fact quite old. Things like electric fans and many aspects of automobiles have remained virtually unchanged for over a century. While innovation is an important part of uh, technology's life cycle, once technologies are out there, they spend most of their time being non-innovations. Um, we expect them, we assume them, and, and we ignore them. Like the chairs you're sitting on right now, do you feel like they're innovatively holding your backside? <laughs> you feel your bottom being innovated? I don't know. But they're working fine. I'm sure you're comfortable, right? And that's good. Uh, think going down this line then it leads us to like, start to realize the crucial importance of those technologies that we call infrastructure. Our sewers, water systems, roadways, airports, power grids, all these things that when they work, make modern life modern. And yet, with our focus on innovation, we so often neglect and abuse these basic systems. Now, this might be particularly true in the United States. Over the last couple of years, we've heard a lot of stories about major infrastructure failures in the States. This includes the lead poisoning of American water systems, most famously in Flint, Michigan, but it also turns out in water systems around the nation. And it also includes fires in the Washington, D.C. subway system, which killed one person and led to two lines being shut down for a year. And it turned out that these problems were all the result of deferred maintenance and repair, which hadn't been done because of budgetary restrictions. Now, on top of causing danger and harm, our crumbling infrastructure also cuts down on our ability to do business. I have a friend who works for the kind of famous once microbrewery 
a brewing company called Sierra Nevada, and he told me that uh, American railroad beds are so bad and they cause so much vibration and rocking that they have to put extra packaging and cushioning into the rail trucks. And that means that they can send less beer with every shipment, right? And it cuts into uh, their, their profits. But then I think we have to and, you know, really ask ourselves a deep question, which is, have we lost sight of our basic values to such a terrible degree that we're even willing to risk the life of our beer? <laughs> I mean, you know, our kids maybe, but our beer? Um, and here's the third point. Focusing on ordinary technologies and infrastructure leads us to consider those individuals who we call the maintainers. All the ordinary people who simply keep our society going, like all the people back here who are helping run this show right now. The vast majority of human labor does not introduce new things, but instead sustains our ordinary humdrum reality. And when we examine this kind of labor, we find that much of it is low status and low paid, much of it is domain of women and racial and ethnic minorities. We often neglect our maintainers, we ignore the good they do us, and often we take advantage of them. Now, people often ask us, how much, what percentage of human labor is put towards maintenance instead of innovation? This is very hard to determine. We have good numbers in some places. Like we know in the Air Force, there are 20 maintainers for every pilot. Focusing on digital technologies here can be helpful because journalists and hype mongers like to focus on computers that run themselves, on algorithms, on AI, on robots that are going to take our jobs. But when we examine computing, what we find in reality is a bunch of human beings working. The historian Nathan Ensminger points out that between 70 and 80% of computing budgets go into maintenance and upkeep. Software fixes, bug patches, help desks, IT departments, even our most cutting-edge technologies run on the back, backs of maintainers. And for the last year, it's come out that um, parts of Facebook's system, that, like its trending list that everyone assumed was run by algorithms, are in fact run by perfectly ordinary human beings who have flaws like political biases. Um, the researcher Lily Arani has looked at uh, how low-paid laborers scrub digital information, like low-paid workers in India who scan advertisements for porn, violence, and alcohol. And we can think all of the work that goes into moderating internet comment fields in the endless and completely hopeless, hopeless task of simply maintaining common decency. Um, if innovation policy is a bust, we can talk in the discussion about what maintainer policy might look like. In the United States, I think it would include funding infrastructure, raising the minimum wage, and publicly funding childcare. And if I go on for too long, I'll sound boring, and I'll sound like Bernie Sanders, basically. <laughs> also, since I've arrived here, many Australians want to have like, this strange and seemingly irresistible uh, desire to talk to me about some guy named Donald Trump. And if you'd like to talk about, in the discussion, we can talk about how the Trump phenomenon connects this maintainer stuff, because it does in deep ways. But for now, let me conclude by saying this. Technology is important. We live in a different world today than we did two centuries ago. Innovation, the real process, has been important, is important, will be important. It's part of what capitalism is good at. But innovation is not a value in itself. It's not something for us to worship. And it's not something that you can just conjure up no matter how many times you say the word agile. <laughs> the reality is that we often neglect the ordinary technologies that make up our lives, and the fruits of these modern systems have always been unequally dis distributed, with some people left behind. We're much better served by focusing on these basic issues. We're much better served by focusing, for instance, and asking ourselves the question of whether black lives and aboriginal lives matter, we're much better served by looking away from our gadgets and taking care of the ordinary and the humdrum. Isn't it terrible 
that in this age of cringeworthy and repetitious and emulative innovation speak, caring for the mundane somehow feels like a real innovation, maybe even like a dangerous idea. Thank you very much. <laughs> Two microphones, go for it. I'm sure you've got questions and comments. We'd love your participation, so make your way, part the crowd, part those waters, and head to the mics, please, to be part of the conversation. And uh, very agile presentation. Oh, thank you very yeah. much. And do you feel this sort of profound sense of catharsis right now? Should we just exhale? It's going to be okay. <laughs> you can just maintain your life. <laughs> because, Lee, you've described the age of innovation as the age of anxiety. Yeah, that's right. Um, this came clear to me when I started researching the rise of innovation, innovation policy in the United States. And it was so clearly um, a part of this fear of Japan and economic competition from the Japanese that we had in the late 70s and 80s. And then, of course, that, that fear switched to China, right, uh, since then. And I think that at every level, right, if you're worried about what skills your kids are going to have, whether your business is going to be disruptive, I just think it's a, it's a kind of very profound culture of fear pervasive culture of fear, mm. yeah. Although, it, there's a natural impulse, isn't there, for us to try new things. We're humans, we're creative, we've got whopping big frontal lobes. Yeah. We want to explore and be adventurous. Mm. We get bored to death if we sit on our bums for too long, mm -hmm. doing the same thing forever. Yes. So... That's partly true, do right? Do you celebrate that impulse in us? Is it just the language oh, of sure. innovation that gives you the... Shits, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It really does give you the shits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope to be. I hope I'm a creative person. Yeah, I strive to be a creative person in my work. You know, I, I, I celebrate creativity in, in many forms. I love music and art and all these things. I even I love technology. I, I love nothing more than walking around your beautiful city with my smartphone and fancy headphones and listening to rock and roll. You know, like. That's great. I'm not an anti-technology person. It's really this rhetoric that gets up my nose. Mm. So you're not, you're not what some would describe as the neo-Luddite... Not at all. ...movement, mm -mm. this sort of you know, revival of back-to-basics. No. No, and I, I think that, you know, innovation is good, can be good, and, and, and really it's about having a sober perspective on what it is and even how we can encourage it. So does, do, do, how does your childhood growing up in a Rust Belt town surrounded by defunct steel mills mm -hmm. in the Midwest of America, in Illinois, how does that inform your It's thinking? everything, yeah. Um, I grew up in this really poor town that it was blown out, there were no steel mills anymore. My, oh, we were, my high school mascot was the Steelman, which was this it was from the 1933 World's Fair. It was this robot pushing humanity into the future, this, the woman and the man. And I, during my senior year, I wrote an editorial saying it, it had it exactly backwards, right, that the humans had to be behind the machine. And it was just so ironic having the steelman be our mascot when there's no steel industry left and we're just left, we're just, I don't know, mm. left in the rubble or something like that. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Let's uh, unpick. Uh, innovation language is interesting. Um, so here's one that gets bandied around a lot. Fail fast. Oh, yeah. Fail often. Yeah. I say you should, like, give that advice to your children so that they stay in second grade for <laughs> the rest of time. Right? Some of the impulse of mm -hmm. innovation is interesting. I mean, if we think about the origins of the kind of innovation community, it, it, it's the geeks, it's the disruptors. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's a bit of innovation speak. Mm -hmm. It's the hackers, it's the, the naughty people, it's the rule breakers. I mean, they're, they're <coughs> people to no, be celebrated say, sometimes, no, yeah? No. I, I think that those people definitely played a role, but you know, when you study industrial capitalism, it's really about like standards committees. Right? It's so boring. 
the paperwork these guys produce as part of like the American Society of Mechanical Engineers or whatever. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that industrialism is really built on. Yes, uh, new ideas are an essential part of that, and so the, the nerds and the, the people with different ideas are important, but that's a very skewed vision of what, how industrialism and technology has actually worked. Mm. Oh, there's a sort of folk mythology, and it goes back before Steve Jobs and Bill yeah. Gates and Silicon Valley. It goes back to Edison and yeah. Tesla and, doesn't it, these, these inventors, these innovators are the kind of folk heroes mm. of our societies, particularly your society. It's sort of yeah. part of the self-narrative of America. Yeah, for sure. Just think about the light bulb. Watch a cartoon and then... You know, when someone gets an idea, a light bulb shows up. Mm. I mean, yeah, it's a cult going all the way back. Mm. Mm. Is that dangerous? I mean, is it okay to have folk heroes that are kind of part of this innovation mythology now? I don't think it's intrinsically dangerous. I think that when we disney the history of technology, we often leave out the grisly stories of industrial culture, including all the people who have been oppressed, all the violence that went into oppressing labor unions. Um, think about the Native Americans or whatever. You know, like, we, there's a lot of stories we leave out when we just focus on these kind of inventor geniuses. Mm. Let's take some questions and we'll keep talking. Thank you, over there. Hi, Lee, thanks for that, it's fantastic. I, I take your point about inno-speak. I feel like it's the new variation on management-speak. Yeah. Deep dives and re-litigating points. But um, my question was, um, is around the consumer's experience of inno-speak. And I think about it in terms of fintech, but in terms of my own personal experience, I've been thinking about it a lot. But I guess I wouldn't mind hearing from you about how the proliferation of innovative technologies is kind of disenfranchising lots of people who don't want to consume in the way that we want them to consume. So not allowing people to have traditional forms of banking or traditional forms of receiving, you know, the, the telco bills and all of that. And I suppose what I'm thinking about is certain generational issues that come with, you know, you're just not sexy if you don't get on board and you don't consume in the way we want you to consume this stuff. Mm. Yeah. Good question. That's a great question. I mean, I like the examples you gave of banking and things like that. I would also just look at, think about the technological obsolescence that if you have an, an Apple iPhone, like they only support you for like two years and then you're fed to the sharks, you're done. So there's this like constant turnover, it's like forced obsolescence, right? You can't have an old phone. Um, and there's also just a lot of like, think about Google Glass or like Nest where they decided to shut down these people's smart home gadgets because they didn't want to support them anymore. Mm. So there's a lot of disenfranchisement of consumers, I think. And there's really not much of a political movement to say that consumers have rights around technologies, that Apple needs to continue to support these things if we're going to spend $400 on them or whatever. Mm. Yeah. I've often wondered whether part of the innovation push too is emblematic of ageism in the workplace. Mm. You know, it's this sort of the struggle of midlife middle managers to stay relevant in the workplace in an ageist workplace. So, yeah. you know, they push the innovation agenda and anyone who can't keep up is somehow defunct or irrelevant or of no use, really. Yeah. Or backward or holding the, holding the, you know, holding everyone back. I think it's also really useful for, like, intergenerational warfare. Because mm. you can be, like, an, a young person and be like, I'm the innovator around here, mm. right? I'm going to disrupt everything. You guys are all... <laughs> you guys are idiots, you know? And so, like, you know, it's just, it doesn't allow for wisdom at all, really. Oh, I'll be so interested to hear from you on that in your workplaces, whether that dynamic is being played out. So please, take to the mics. Thank you. Number two. Uh, Lee, one word I've not heard you mention this morning is the word invention. Mm -hmm. I, I can't recall a period in recent human history, at least, where uh, invention has become a fetish. There might have been periods where it was characterised by speak, yeah. invention speak. Um, as, as an example, mm -hmm. and my wife and I are both convinced would, that uh, Pokemon is yeah. neither an invention or an innovation, but it's certainly a fetish. 
So yeah. Should Pokemon be maintained? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're, they're everywhere, they're everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. We, we, in the history of technology, we often talk about the cult of invention um, as kind of arising in the 19th century around people like um, uh, Edison, for instance. And there's also, in, by the 20s and 30s, corporations are starting to use images of magic and invention as kind of PR campaigns and advertising campaigns. So there are, and there are historians looking at how invention gets pushed in culture during the 50s and 60s and stuff like that. But I think there's no moment comparable with invention to innovation speak, if that's what you're getting at. I think that's right. Mm. Yeah. When I think of things like the Pokemon um, phenomenon, I think of the disposable heroes of hypocrisy song around television being the opiate of a nation of the mm. nation, and this is just another thing to distract us from what we really, really have to sort out, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. uh, another question? Have we got another question? Yes, come on down. Hi. Um, yeah, just a really interesting uh, um, discussion around innovation. For Coming from a personal experience, I come from a research background and I was you know, desperately wanted to stay in research and then suddenly there was this flowering of interest in supporting research through the discussion around innovation and sort of the community of scientists were getting very excited because people would finally maybe um, put money into the front end of innovation, which is basic research. Mm -hmm. Innovation really is the translation mm -hmm. of that. That's right. And I suppose hearing comments like, oh, giving money to research is giving, to people, giving money to people who already have it, <laughs> coming from a position yeah, yeah. of a scientist who had very little and, Sorry, I hurt and you, left I yeah. science because of that. Yeah. I worked for free no, for six I, months. No, I was hoping but, yeah. someone was going to come up and push me on that. Cause, yeah, because so, um, there's, there's two sides to it, and I suppose. You know, the sh people in shiny suits with lots of buzzwords get it, should probably get it in the neck, but mm -hmm. those people <laughs> labouring really hard at the front end with passion and very little expectation of monetary reward, you know, they, as part of this debate, I feel that they're going to get squashed as well. Mm. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I mean, I'm, I'm my, at, at my university, I'm a part of this thing called the awards capture team, which is <laughs> we're trying to bring in more funding. So you should definitely give me money. There's no doubt about that, right? I'm trustworthy, I do good stuff. But yeah, I, I understand. I also know that, I don't know if this is true in Australia, I heard a rumor, I know it's true in other countries, that like, the government cuts basic science spending and then has like, innovation policies, right? And oftentimes the innovation policy doesn't even come close to where the, what was going on before the cuts. And so, you know, I think there, there's a lot to be said. I have many views on science policy that we could go on about forever, but, yeah. Mm. So you talk about an ethics of care. Mm -hmm. Describe what that will look like, how that is a pushback at the current innovation mantra of the moment. Well, I mean, in the States, that, I mean, that's what I was trying to get at with, um, with the infrastructure story. Um, this is, you know, when you said innovation is a kind of bipartisan thing, I, often, I also believe that this maintainer's vision is also potentially bipartisan because conservatism is really about caring for what we've inherited, the old Edmund Burke idea of mm. conservatism. And, you know, the progressivism is about dealing with those aspects that industrial culture are kind of neglecting or... And so for me, the ethics of care is like trying to turn away from this shiny gadget stuff and just thinking about caring about what we have and making sure that's going as, as good as, pos as, as it possibly can. Now, of course, introducing new things... Yeah, they don't it, have to be at odds with each yeah, other. Yeah, no, they're not. So they're you not. sort of are painting them as at odds with each other. Uh, yeah, but for polemical purposes, right? <laughs> um, I, I, I'm, I'm not, an, I'm, this is what I'm trying to make the distinction between like actual innovation and, and the talk. Mm. What engineers have always done in industrial culture is make things more efficient. That's what engineering's about. It's about efficiency. So if you're caring for some system, part of that system is going to be introducing new objects or ways of doing things that improve that thing. That's just part of it. Mm. But what you should be focusing on is the end, 
and not the means. We're getting too caught up on the means as if they're the answer to everything. And really, I think we need to care about, you know, how things are. Yeah, because the other dimension of this, of course, is, you know, they keep talking about innovation, you know, and we'll have new things and we'll have new gadgets and startups will create things that, of course, we absolutely need. They will vitally change our lives. But there's a limit to growth, potentially, although there's an mm. argument to be had around that as well. Mm. And some of this just totally ignores the fact that there are, we have limited ecological resources on this planet. Yeah. It's blind to that, it mm -hmm. seems, at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, my first book, which is on this auto-regulation, that started as me being a part of a climate change group. And so what I was looking at there was how we use, use standards and regulations to deal with things like air pollution. Mm. And what we find is that while libertarians and Chicago school economists and these sorts of people want to claim that regulation hinders innovation and holds back innovators, um, regulation actually encourages innovation in some places. So for me, this climate change is a great example. Like, it would be wonderful if we could deal with greenhouse gases and get this under control before we destroy ourselves, right? And part of that, if we do the regulations right, it will involve a lot of innovation and maybe even a lot of economic growth mm. if we do it right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah? Mean, another question. Oh, hi. Come a bit closer to the mic and let's see if it's on. Talk into it, yeah. Okay. yeah. Th there you are. Um, thank you. I think you articulated and verbalized things that bug us on a daily basis um, for many of us, so thank you for that. My question is around the ambiguity aspect in innovation. Um, I'm an educator that brings students and uh, industry to work together on projects. And uh, very often these are based on lean innovation and design thinking frameworks. And, lean, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah that's not <laughs> What is lean innovation? Just under-resourced. Yeah. Oh, another one is... Um, We're good at that. Critical thinking. Uh, for me, critical, uh, back where I come from, is associated with being ill and hospitalised. Um, and, and now there's critical thinking, which was, which was not a big word earlier. But um, just on the ambiguity of innovation, um, most people tend to have a brainstorming session with post-it notes, and you move stuff around and walk with thinking. My God, I am a fabulous disruptor innovator. Mm -hmm. I just nailed it. And um, just sitting there, you don't know the right answer to it as yet, but you do know that people have done a really crappy job of brainstorming. And how, how can you actually get that message across considering the ambiguity when you don't know the right answer, but you know the answer people have arrived at is wrong? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wish I had an answer for you, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, again, going back to humans being creative, I think it just takes being in that moment and working on that problem, trying to be creative. And a lot of times it just means setting aside this way of talking, like lean and agile. Um, yeah, and just being there. I wish I could solve that problem for you, I really do. Mm. Yeah. Maybe someone in the audience can solve the problem. Mm. Um, I often think that as soon as a workplace introduces an innovation strategy, that's it, it's all yeah. over. Yeah. <laughs> creativity, it's like a last act of desperation. It sort of suppresses yeah. creativity rather yeah. than allows it to flourish. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, hi, Lee. Hi, Natasha. Um, I'm part of the next generation. I would describe myself as an innovator and a disruptor. Um, I do cringe at myself sometimes. Um, I also Anya. come from Wollongong, which is the city of innovation. Um, yeah. Tr trust me, Lee, there's not a lot of innovation in Wollongong. Um, I, I, I just want to bring up the point of, within innovation, uh, I, I feel like innovation is, is removing of, of redundancy and redundant jobs, and that's often through automation. Um, and I love, I love that idea. Um, but the scary thing is that there's a lot of loss of jobs and there's going to be a huge uh, a, a portion of, of society that's going to lose their jobs in the next 10 years. Uh, should there be any regulations or policies in place to prevent or to assist? That, 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 yeah, that's what I was asking for. Thank okay. you. Yeah. And Wollongong, just to explain, Steel City. Okay. Yeah. Um, I understand. In, Stevens is the Innovation University. Um, where I teach, so I, f I feel you. Um, okay, so I actually am not 
100% sure that the current discourse about all this jobs being lost to computing and robots and stuff is actually going to pan out. Um, we've seen this kind of talk and worries about technological unemployment come around historically again and again, going back for hundreds of years. Okay, and often, yes, there are going to be some jobs lost, of course, but often the reality is, is much different than the vision, right? We, we just, there's no facts about the future. And so what I would say is you should focus on the social problems that you have right now. And then if, if, if it turns out that you have more social problems because more people don't have work, then you're going to deal with that too. But instead of like pretending you know that all these jobs are going to be lost because robots are coming, um, you just deal with reality. You know, I, I think I'm really trying to push back against this kind of science fictional future orientation where we, we assume that robots and all these things are coming, which is very common right now. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. On the other hand, though, you know, where bureaucracies operate, where workplaces have had little generational change, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. there's a, there is sedentary behaviour. Sure. And it can be profoundly frustrating mm -hmm. for next-gen workers coming in mm -hmm. who want to try new things and use new technology and transform systems. Yeah. So... In a way, they they attach themselves to the innovation speak because yeah. it's a it's a path for liberation. Yeah, it's the intergenerational warfare thing. Mm. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, can, I think that we we've it can, all been it can enable them in a workplace yeah. that hasn't traditionally been receptive to change. For example, it could. You can imagine a situation where a young person was not going to be listened to, and if they use the right, right rhetoric on this stuff, people have to listen up. Mm. Yeah, you, yeah. Can, you can imagine situations where that would work out. Yep, I think that's probably quite common. <laughs> Have we got a question over here? Thank you. Um, hi. So, hi. Um, in your speech, you said that um, innovation usually is um, centered around the wealthy, is for the good of the wealthy. Then um, how can we make it um, directed towards the good for the common people? Mm. Yeah, great question. I mean... Like, think about the... Yeah, I think that's a great question. That's yeah, the question. Yeah, I mean, this is just that, like... That is the question, I think. Yeah. Because cause could, it, could, be a, could it be a force for good? For, Innovation. For social reform that is embracing and inclusive? Innovation. Yeah. Uh, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I feel like as long as we've had culture, and especially industrial culture, we've had inequality and poverty... And it, in different societies, inequality is less, and the poor have more. Um, and I, so I think this just gets at really like old questions about welfare economics and how we do this kind of stuff. Now, now listen, innovation, real innovation, has, like for instance, dropped the prices of objects so that in the United States, more poor people have air conditioning than they did 20 or 30 years ago. That's how the economy works. It makes things cheaper. Mm -hmm. That's good if you're, you know, it's 100 degrees Fahrenheit uh, and you want to sleep. And, like, I want people to feel good, right? Um, but I think that it just gets at these very basic issues. You have to fa face up to inequality and, you know, all these things like racism and whatnot. I don't know. Mm. Which would take some innovation in social policy arenas. <laughs> If that's how we want to put it, It's sure. so sad that that word is so dead to us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Um, hi there. I work um, in research similar to the gentleman from earlier. My background's in consumer research. And now I'm an experienced designer working under an innovation director. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're living the dream. Yeah. Kind of, kind of. <laughs> You'd think so. But what I find most often when I do research um, with consumers is that um, what they want is for big banks, telcos, postal services, etc., to fix their existing fucking systems. <laughs> um, but 
we do these projects where we do the research in order to inform the ideation, to come up with the innovative ideas, to come up with the next new app or sexy product or service or whatever. Yeah. Um, the problem with our findings is it's really hard to sell in fix your f fucking systems to these people because it's not going to make them money and it's not sexy. So how do we sell in this idea of fixing your existing systems and stuff? I don't know. Wow. Yeah, you've got to... Come on. <laughs> yeah? You have to answer this question. It's vital. Yeah? Are you sex up maintenance or whatever? Yeah. <laughs> Play their game. No. Play their game. I've often thought of, like, creating a maintenance mascot. You know, like a, <laughs> maybe a professional wrestler who flexes in front of bridges or something. Like, I think we, we can create kind of a cool maintenance culture connected to hipsters and good coffee. <laughs> Maybe, maybe we can sell it. I don't, but I don't know. I think that, you know, I have a buddy who run, helps runs an IT department in a university in the Midwest. And it, ironically, it's the IT department within the computer science program. And none of the computer scientists know how computers work. <laughs> and they constantly want to introduce these new cool things. And he's just trying to keep the world from falling apart. You know, and I think that how you create a sanity around these systems is vital. I'm with you. Let's get together and start a startup, you know? <laughs> I, th I reckon you've nailed it. You have nailed it because, I mean, I've certainly watched the IT department in my workplace really, you know, sex it up. They communicate really well. They, they're branding themselves. They've, you know, mm -hmm. I, I mean, maybe we do need a... a a campaign for the maintainers. Yeah. I'm Brand it, logo. I need research money for that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, Lee, my, my question's even a little more basic than the previous one. I keep hearing about climate change. What we need is a new technology to come along and save yeah. us. And coming from the background of agriculture and looking at soil science and stuff, we, we have the technology and it's really a very basic one and very unattractive and it's bacteria, microbes, fungi in the soil increasing the humus levels and the moisture in the soil to delay the onset of drought and absorb huge amounts of carbon, etc. And I, I go crazy looking at these people, you know, you get a couple of, you know, young disruptors up there saying we, what we need, you know, is new technology to do yeah. this. And, and I thought, where, where will this end? How can we make these very basics mm. more attractive? And where would this absolute madness end that we need some expensive new technology to solve it when, yeah. when we have the very basics right there? So like, hold that thought. Oh, okay. I might just grab that question behind you as well. At the same time, do you mind taking a few at once? Because no, we've fine. only got a few minutes left, so yeah, let's grab cool. a few. Hi, Lee. Hello. Uh, I run a startup. Yeah. <laughs> here in Sydney. Um, we have a huge problem with productivity because everyone wants to be innovators in a startup. Yeah. And we do need a mix of people who are innovating and a mix of maintainers. Yeah. Um, my question is really is this not all a little bit self fulfilling? And how do we get out of this? Because for me to get publicity, for me to get the press interested in what we're doing, I need to be talking about us being a startup, us being lean, us being agile, yeah. us being disruptive. Uh, if there was another way of getting publicity and getting press and PR, I yeah. would use other ways too. Yeah. But isn't it all a bit self-fulfilling? Mm. Mm. I don't want to take that away from you. I yeah. wish you luck, man. Um, <laughs> And if that means you have to talk like this, that's do it. I would say do that, you know, be successful. Um, and I, you know, I, I just don't think we have another way of talking right now. I want to go to the, the climate change issue. I really think that this is the thing with reasonable climate change policy is that it's going to get us to start using the solutions we already have. We have all kinds of things. I mean, just think about housing. Think about how energy inefficient every, nearly every structure is. You know, if we just created meaningful policies so that we started changing our structures and making them all more energy efficient, that's not fusion power. Or some, you know, or quantum computers or whatever are going to come and save us. It's just like totally ordinary stuff. And we would get there if we had a policy that was pushing us to do it.
Thank you. Final question. Thank you. Um, you threw out the hook, I'm biting. Can you tell me something about the way Trump intersects with innovation? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yay! <laughs> we got there. What a way to end. Yeah, quickly. So I think that what we're seeing, uh, George Packer was here yesterday uh, talking, and I, he and I agree with this. I think what we're seeing with the Trump phenomenon is that there are no one talking, there's no one talking to Trump fans and no one has been talking to them for at least a generation, right? They do not connect to Reagan and Rubio and all these kind of people and they definitely don't connect to the Democrats. So there's kind of the, the political elite has left behind the ordinary working class, average Joe maintainer folks. And that's what we're seeing is their rage at being left behind. So I'm a progressive, like I'm a, you know, I like Bernie and whatever, and I would say that that's how I would handle, I want to handle their issues through social policy. But I completely understand where they're coming from. I'm not a racist, right? Um, so I don't get that. Um, <laughs> but mm -hmm. uh, but I, what I found with myself, and this will all conclude, is that I found that I was being snide and proud with these people and mocking them without under, trying to understand where they're coming from. And then when you realize where they're coming from, you realize no one is dealing with their problems. And Trump's the first person that's spoken to them in like 30 or 40 years, right? And so I think that if we, if we wanted, you know, if we don't want to have Trump, what we need to do is really address the, the terrible things that these people are facing in blown out cities like where I came from. It, and it is so incredible, isn't it, that he is the antithesis of their lives. And yeah, yet, yeah. so there's a sort of aspirate. Oh, there's all kinds of crazy paradoxes with him. There's no, I'm not defending Trump. Please don't come away from this thinking I'm defending Trump. Lee Vinsel. Thank you very much.